So we have uh, been in this uh, study of the story of the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, we've been discovering some things along the way. We discovered first that sometimes we think we're waiting on God, but actually it's God who's waiting on us. We're saying as soon as God does something, then I'm ready to kind of get get right in behind him. And actually God is the one who's saying, as soon as they start, I'm going to lean in and make that really a success. So we've learned that. We've also seen uh, that, that the Ark of the Covenant, this, this chest that contained the Ten Commandments, um, uh, over time people began to think that that's where God was. And we saw that, that the nice thing about having uh, God in a box is you can carry the box around and whenever you need some God, you just open up the box, get God out, do some God stuff, and put God back in the box. The problem with that, as we discovered, is that any God like that is really a pretty small and, and not very helpful God. So it's not good to have a God that actually fits in a box. It's not good to have a box we can under, uh, God that we can, um, that we can manipulate and control. It's not good really even to have a God that we always understand. That any God that we can put into a box is a pretty small God. Uh, but last week we saw that even if we could put God into a box, there would be a problem, which is we might lose the box. And that's where we pick up the story today. That the, the people of God, the Israelites, Took the, God, took the ark of God into battle, thinking that they could, they could just force God's hand, that if, that if they took the ark of God uh, into battle against the Philistines, then God would be forced to fight for them. And it didn't work out that way. God did nothing, and uh, the battle was lost, and the ark was captured. And so uh, we, we pick up the story now. Um, last week we looked at how Israel reacted when they lost the ark, and now we're going to look at the other side of the story. We're going to look at what happened when... The Philistines picked up uh, when, when they took on the ark, and and really the question for us as we as we think about this story is okay if a god that fits in an ark is too small, what's the right size of god? How big of a god do we believe in? I think a lot of us are kind of confused about this issue because on the one hand, we we believe at at some level we believe in a very big god. We believe you know the creed tells us. Um, when we're when we're stating our beliefs, we say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We believe that God made everything, that everything we see, everything we can imagine, everything in all of the universe is something that God made, and it has its existence only because of the will of God. That that from the atoms and quarks and all the stuff scientists discover at a small level, all the way up to galaxies and quasars, everything in all creation, and even the, the framework of creation, the universe itself, exists because of God's will. And that if God willed differently, then it would not continue to exist by itself. It doesn't, it doesn't have any existence independent of God. So we believe in a very big God. But at the same time, we sometimes believe in a pretty small parochial kind of God. We believe in a God that, that is confined not to a chest, that you can carry around on a set of poles, but maybe to a nation or a, a religious tradition. We believe in a God that, that belongs to a particular denomination, or in our case, two denominations. Um, we believe in a God that belongs in a church as opposed to out in the world somewhere. We believe in that, that God of the galaxies, but we don't really believe that God is in our workplace or in our school or in our neighborhood. We believe in a God that is at once big and very small. And so what I'd like to do is look at this passage of when the Philistines uh, receive, when they take as war prize, they take the ark of God back home to, to their home country. 
to be thinking about the question, how big of a God is that ark the, the sign of? So, let's go ahead and take a look at this passage, um, chapter 5 of of the uh, first book of Samuel. So it says, the Philippines, the Philistines, I'm going to say that all day, the Philistines captured the ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The the Philistia, or we would say uh, the the Greek word for it is Palestine. So that's where we get we get the word Palestine. The the Philistines um, are are a confederation of five city states. So each one of these cities, Ashdod, Ekron, Gaz, uh, uh, Gath, and so forth, have a small region around them. And collectively, uh, this little region on the uh, what is it? The southwest coast of the Holy Land. Uh, down toward Egypt, that area is called Philistia, and the people who live there are called Philistines. But the most preeminent of those cities is a place called Ashdod. So after they win this battle, the 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 chief city says, you know, dibs on the ark, and they take it back to their temple. So they bring it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and placed it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they put the ark of God at the feet of Dagon, thinking this shows who's in charge. One of them is bowing down to the other. But when they came back the next morning, things had been reversed. And uh, that it was actually Dagon who is now on his face uh, prostrate before, before the, the ark of God. And they say, well... I think I maybe imagined that there was an earthquake last night. So let's just pick everything back up. Let's put it back where it belongs, and we'll see where things are tomorrow. So they did the same thing the next day, and they came in in the morning. And this time, not only had Dagon's statue, the, the idol to Dagon, had fallen down in front of the ark, but now the heads and the hands had been removed and placed on the threshold. And this is one of those icky things in, in ancient cultures. Uh, kind of like scalping in the Old West, if you won a battle and you wanted to prove to somebody how many people you killed on the other side, you didn't want to tote around the carcasses. So instead, you just cut off the hands and carry them with you, right? So this was a sign that Dagon has been thoroughly defeated. He's been killed in battle. So his head and his hands are the sign that Dagon has has been destroyed by God. So that's a sign that in that culture would have been instantly recognizable. Now, it's interesting, it talks about the threshold there. Um, uh, I don't know what to make of that, except that in, in my uh, uh, scholarly works that I read, uh, they said this, this is actually pretty common throughout the ancient world. There was, a, there was a superstition about thresholds, and so this is the one that Dagon uh, had, the, the people of, Phyllis, uh, of Ashdod had a threshold. But we all know about the, the other threshold uh, superstitions. How many of you carried a bride across a threshold or or we're told you should. That's a threshold uh, superstition we have in our culture where when somebody gets married, you're supposed to carry the bride across the threshold and you know, not step in the crack, break your mother's back or whatever. So so, uh, so we can smile at that. And I think really this first scene in kind of chapter 5, the act that is chapter 5, is meant to make us kind of smile. Um, because we see, you know, God's, God's uh, still ruling in, in this part of the world where the Philistines thought that he couldn't. But chapter 6, uh, or the, the, the rest of the chapter, is not as pleasant. It's kind of that Old Testament vibe, the, the God who smites people. And that's where we pick it up in verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and struck them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. Now, this word tumor is kind of a vague word. They didn't have medical precision, um, so people speculate what that means. Um, 500 years ago, with the memory of the Black Death still very 
very real in, in Europe. Martin Luther said he thought it was probably bubonic plague, that the, the tumors here were buboes. So I don't know. It doesn't say, and really the Bible doesn't give us enough information to be sure. But whatever it was, they struck them with tumors, both in Ashdod and in his territory. And when the inhabitants of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy on us and on our God Dagon. So they sent and they gathered together the lords. There was kind of a summit meeting of all the, the mayors or whatever you call the, the presidents of these city-states. They said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And there's kind of, again, a little bit of humor. This is being told from the point of view of the Israelites, of course. The humor here is that if I'm having trouble in my house and I've somehow traced it to the lawnmower of my neighbor Frank that's in my garage, and I say, what shall I do with the lawnmower of Frank, my neighbor? That question kind of answers itself, doesn't it? Right? I give it back to Frank. It's not my lawnmower. I should give it back to Frank. So they keep saying to themselves, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Gee, this is a real puzzle. I don't know. What should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? So over and over again, they keep asking this question. I think we're supposed to smile at that. And the inhabitants of Gath. Gath is the town where later on in a few chapters we'll hear about a guy named Goliath, a big man, nine feet tall, covered with bronze armor, uh, maybe they, they're all kind of like Goliath there. They say, you Ashdod people, you're so wimpy. We'll take the Ark of God because we, we can handle it. And so it gets there, and like in the same verse it says, it says, when they brought it to Gath, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. He struck the inhabitants of the city, both young and old, and tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of the God of Israel to Ekron. But when the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron are not like the people of Gath. They don't say this is a great thing and we're, we're going to be able to handle it. They say, why have they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people? They sent, therefore, and gathered together the, our, our, all the lords of the Philistines. And this time, instead of asking them what should we do, they say, here's what we will do. They say, um, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. Send away the lawnmower of Frank, my neighbor, and let it return to his garage because it's causing trouble here at my house. So they say, send it back to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Those who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So on the one hand, we see here there is there is a little bit of humor, but it's really one of those Old Testament sort of passages, the God who smites people. And we see the hand of God is very, very heavy. But as I read it, I think to myself, what is it with these tumors? You know, the, the, when I start thinking about that stereotypical Old Testament God, the one who thunders from the top of the mountains, I would think there'd be like a crater in Ashdod. But there's not. God does not just zap Ashdod and everybody is destroyed. Instead, God does this, this weird thing with the tumors. And it's evident that not everyone dies. It says those who did not die were stricken with tumors. In fact, it's not even clear how many people did die. Clearly some did, but we don't know how many. So if God is, if this is God's heavy hand, it may be heavy, but it seems to be pretty judicious. It's not, it's not just pressing down on the whole city. It's pressing down on individuals as if God is trying to persuade them of something. And of course God is. This is a psychological warfare and God is trying to persuade them to get rid of the ark, to send it back where it belongs. And instead of just destroying the town, God presses down on them until they say, all right, I give up. They tap out and they send the ark on to the next place. So God is heavy on them, but he's not 
just a monster destroying out of revenge. He's pressuring them to make them give back the ark. And the reason for that is that God is at work in Philistia. God is at work in Ashdod and Gath and Ekron. You know, in the ancient world, gods were local gods. You know, Athens is named after their god Athena. Um, uh, another town might have a god Apollo. In the in the town of in the town of Ashdod, they have a god Dagon. They they have these they have these local gods, and the idea is that this god's territory is from here to there. And when you move to another town, you start saluting a different god, and that's the way the world works. But here's a god who belongs up in the hill country of Judea. He's got no juice here, except he does. Dagon, this this uh, local god, bows down and ultimately has his hands and heads broken off in order to worship this god from a far-off place. And the reason is because God is the God of the world. And we say, okay, well, that makes sense. But God is also the God of the Philistines, not in the sense that they know him, but in the sense that God does not simply destroy them. God doesn't wipe them out and say, let the Israelites come in and take your territory. God pressures them because God wants to have a relationship with them. We see all through the scriptures, we, we see words like lost, and the reason for that is that is that there are people in the world who don't know God. But God knows them. And so Jesus tells us that the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes off in search of the one. That we read that's the way that God views those people outside the boundaries of his covenant community. He longs to be in relationship with all the people of Ashdod and Ekron and Gath. And I guess that's the question for us. Do we see the people around us, the people who are not church people, that way? Do we see them as someone that God longs to be in relationship with? Do we see them as people that God is already at work in the lives of? You know, one of the reasons I think a lot of a lot of uh, Christians are such bad evangelists is because we think that God needs us to tell his story. But actually, God is already involved in the lives of the people in the world. One of the things that's interesting to me about this story is it's telling us what was going on in Philistia. Uh, this Bible was not written by a Philistine. The Bible was written by Jews living in Judea. And when they wrote this story, they had to know what happened in Philistia. And for that to happen, they had to ask. And I wonder if maybe that's what we're called to do. Instead of saying, let me tell you about the God that I believe in, if we would go up to people, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and say, tell me your story. Just tell me what's going on in your life. And listen to hear what God is doing in their life. And maybe once in a blue moon, they might say, what do you make of that? And then we can say, well, I think I think I hear, heard God in that. But But just to get to know them, to understand the fact that God is at work, Across the street, God is at work at work at school. God is at work in our neighborhoods. God already has a relationship with the people that we might say are lost. Because they may be lost in the sense that they don't know where God is, but they're not lost in the sense that God doesn't know where they are. God is already at work in their lives. I like to imagine a church where people would know us not as 
pushy evangelists who are telling people things, but as interested observers who want to know people's stories. That's what we read in the book of Acts. Cornelius summons Peter because he's got things going on in his life. God is at work in his life in a way he wants to know what was up with that. And maybe we could be the kind of church where people summon us and say, help me understand this. Help me make sense of what's been going on in my life. Instead of being the people who ring the doorbell at dinner time, let me tell you about the God I worship. Jesus says that he goes off in search of the one because he's already got a relationship with that one. And he wants the one to have a relationship with him. Let's be a church that understands that God is at work in the world. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks that you knew us before we knew you, that you hunted us down, that you found us where we were lost. And with time, you have given us eyes to see the ways you were involved in our lives, the wonderful things, sometimes terrifying things that you were doing when we still did not know you. We pray, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear that we might know the things you're doing in the lives of the people around us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.